Loving Father, we thank you uh, that can we be here this morning uh, with our Bibles open, your word to us. And we pray that by your spirit, uh, you would speak to us and again and again show us the glory and wonder that is your son Jesus, that we might respond in repentance and faith. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I'm going to start by asking a question. When is the bad news good news? When is the bad news ever good news? Uh, Sophie, our daughter, as a newborn, was home only a few days, brand new baby, and the midwife had been doing home visits, and she's a nice lady, I can still remember, she was very chatty, and as she's leaving, she's standing there, about to leave with the door open, and she's still talking, uh, but she stopped, and she's paused, because it turned out she forgot one thing. Uh, she pulls out her stethoscope, she gets on her knees to Sophie, and she starts talking about how midwives are checking babies' hearts now, and uh, after that moment, everything changed. Uh, we were told, take your baby straight to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. They said, and then they said, take your baby to Westmead Children's Hospital as soon as you're able. Uh, and the bad news, of course, at the time was t terrible. Uh, it turned out the anatomy of Sophie's heart is highly irregular, uh, such that the paediatric cardiologist uh, so sensitively said her condition is not conducive to long life. Uh, unless her heart was corrected, Sophie would not see her first birthday. The midwife made a judgment. The doctors made a judgment. Our local church prayed their socks off. And so as a five-month-old, uh, our precious Sophie had open-heart surgery. And such correction meant Sophie lives and thrives today. And so we all say, hooray. But what do you think of the bad news now? Uh, in this story, the bad news was good news because the bad news meant something could be fixed and something was able to be made right. Uh, if you've been with us the past three weeks, Zephaniah is full of bad news. Uh, it's been grim. We're told in chapter 1, verse 18, that God is basically going to wipe everything and everyone off the face of the planet, such is their sin and rejection of God. And here, early in chapter 3, God gets his stethoscope out and diagnoses Judah's problem. And the problem is at the very heart of Israel and their worship. The problem is Jerusalem and particularly their leaders. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets 
are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. Uh, Do you see Judah's leaders are like roaring lions and evening evening wolves who are ferocious and ravenous. They leave nothing. There's just a carcass in the morning. That's the picture. And what are they doing? Well, maybe 2 Kings chapter 23 is the background. We don't have time to read it right now. But in 2 Kings chapter 23, there you see King Josiah and they've they've found the book of the law. They haven't had the book of the law for a long time and they've discovered it. And they've decided, oh, we better get back to this. Because it seems this is who God is. And the implication was uh, that King Josiah rid the temple of the worship of other gods. Worship of other gods taking place in the temple, in God's house. They're worshipping other gods. Worship that included male prostitution and other things. And so they were guilty of uh, what we call syncretism. Syncretism is this thing where all the other religions are blended together and synchronised as the one thing. It's like getting uh, this God and that God and getting a big blender and throwing them all into the blender and pressing go. And then you pour it out and you've just got all the one thing. Because apparently this religion stuff, it's all the same depending on who you talk to. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because God says in his Ten Commandments, have no other gods beside me. Don't make them. Don't bow down to them. I'm a jealous God. I am it. That's the first commandment, isn't it? The God who revealed himself in the flood. The God who redeemed them from slavery. The God who delivered them to the promised land, who gave Israel a home. And a God, the same God who made his home there in Jerusalem, where he put his temple there, which is now his house is turned into a den of idolatry where they worship other gods. In Zephaniah 2 verse 11, God says, I will destroy the gods of the land. Little wonder. And so such, what shall we call it, liberal syncretism is not a belief that is consistent with God's word and violence to God's word by church leaders is akin to the violence of a lion on its prey such that there's nothing left of it and that was true then and it's still true today and you'll find this liberal syncretism amongst church leaders of any denomination, take your pick. You can study interfaith dialogue at theological colleges all over the country where you can discuss the commonalities and conclude that all belong to the family of God. It doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jew Take your pick, as long as you're nice and sincere. And so multi-faith services occur 
where such leaders stand up together and the world applauds their religious tolerance and inclusion. And of course, if you don't conform to the liberal view, then you're branded a bigot, which doesn't sound very tolerant and inclusive to me, does it? And the result? Well, here's some examples of what it looks like. In 2009, the Episcopal Diocese of Central New York took the Church of Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. They expelled the congregation and sold the building for a third of its value and it became an Islamic awareness centre. In 2011, the Diocese of New Westminster, Vancouver, froze bank accounts of a parish, took court action to claim the back church property leaving the biggest congregation in Canada no choice but to find a different facility where they could worship God without compromising their biblical beliefs. They're booted out. Again, so much for tolerance and inclusion. And of course, liberalism exists here in this country. Uh, you hear it when the Dean of Brisbane openly repudiates the church's teaching on marriage. But it's much, much worse than that when the new dean of the Grafton Cathedral on Good Friday will preach that the cross is not about my sins and yours. That's what he said on Good Friday. He said, apparently, it's a really bad idea and it's common in hymns and it's a nonsense. I mean, if the cross... It's not about my sin and your sin. Why did Jesus take the cup and give thanks? And then he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the, for the what? For the forgiveness of sins. What do you think we do at the table? I can't have it. imagine having communion at that place with that bloke if Jesus didn't die for our sins. Well, 2 Corinthians 5, what was Paul on about when he said, God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What on earth was the Apostle Paul on about? Or the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, where it talks about Christ sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many. Or 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. But what was Jesus on about in Luke 24 when he said the Messiah will suffer and rise from the, third, from the dead on the third day? And what will happen? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I wonder if we see what is at stake. The underlying central issues of belief. Uh, the authority of God's word in the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the need to be saved by him.
the need for forgiveness. And when the leaders of God's people depart from the authority of God's word, what is plainly told to us in the scriptures, when it's compromised or misused, when it's done violence to, the, the impact is destructive. The gospel is potentially robbed of its power and the cross becomes of no consequence and it seems that Jesus need not have come and died after all. Well, who knew? Verse 4 tells us here in Judah's scenario that God's people are profaned. Such is the corruption of the leadership. The people become unhealthy and become sick spiritually. And God describes it here in these verses as unprincipled, treacherous and violent. And so how did it come to this? Well, as a global communion, we have no excuse for it. And the reason is because the Lord is near. He's always near and he's always available. How do I know that? Well, verse 5 tells us, The Lord within her, Jerusalem, is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. He's there. And every new day, he does not fail. So our leaders might fail, but the Lord will not. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. And so verse 6, I have destroyed the nations, their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste, they are deserted and empty. And of Jerusalem I thought, well surely you will fear me and accept correction. See there's an invitation to repent, isn't there? Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they are still eager to act corruptly in all they did. This invitation to repent, this possibility, uh, starts to open up the blessing of God's judgment in the, in the present. Here we begin to see why the bad news, which really is bad news, is such good news. Because as we see it fall on the world around us, it gives us a wake-up call to repent, to turn around, to listen to God and to accept his correction. Now, I don't know how you go accepting correction. You're probably about as good as I am. And I'm not talking about a hip correction. I'm talking about one of the heart. Heart correction that corrects our spiritual problem. And maybe the thought of being corrected offends your sensibilities and stings your pride. How dare they? Well, yeah, we're all entitled these days. It's just incredible how entitled we all are. But I don't know about you. I actually think when my friend tells me that my fly's undone, I think that's a pretty good correction. I'm grateful for it, aren't you? If you've got something in your teeth, only a true friend would tell you, hey, you've got something in your teeth, you look like you're missing one. Oh, I think that's pretty good, only a true friend would tell you. Or a doctor's diagnosis. We might not like their words, but we appreciate their truth and honesty and the need to act because it'll prolong our life if we listen 
We're never going to stand up to a doctor and say, well, how dare you say that? And so correction is a good thing. Especially when God, the loving Father, says it for our good. And he says, you lot, you need to change course. You need to repent. And so it's a good thing to accept his correction. I wonder, are we open to that? Verses 8 to 20, the blessing of God's final judgment is outlined. Here comes the day of the Lord. Verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Here is a picture of the law court. The Lord himself is in the dock, and he will testify. And interestingly, he's the only witness in this picture. And why is it a good day? I don't know how you feel about the judgment of God, but why is it a good day? It's a good day because it's a day when all wrongs will be put right. It's a day when, when the Lord will deal with all evil and when he will bring in the new creation. It'll be a day of perfect unity. Do you see it there in verse 9? When I'll purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on, my name, on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. There's no disputes or, or arguments in this picture. How good is that? Pure lips. Hallelujah. No gossip. Hallelujah. No poisonous talk. My goodness, that'll be a good day. Verse 11. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove you from, your, from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty. Uh, that's full of yourself, uh, full of your self-importance, proud on my haunt, a holy hill. This will be a day of no shame for all our wrongs that we've done to God. This is a good day where we can look forward to it only because Jesus is going to come and judge. Verse 12, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. So there are some that are the real deal and they will do no wrong and they will tell no lies. A day when there's going to be no more deceit, the end of all deceit, a day when everyone speaks the truth, a world where there is no double talk or no claims of fake news, a day when no one's able to say, oh, I misspoke. <laughs> Verse 13, they will lie down, uh, uh, eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Imagine a world where there's nothing to be afraid in. I mean, parents know about that fear. We read the papers, we fear for our children's safety. In this world, we will teach our kids uh, not to trust anybody, but in the world to come, no, in the new creation, it won't be a thing at all. And God can only provide that world if he deals with evil and if he judges evil. Verse 14, so sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. 
He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. All the skeletons in our closets are gone here. There is no fear of the past catching up with us as God's anger is turned aside. And who will do it? Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. And what will the mighty warrior who saves do? Well, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. In heaven, in the new creation, God our Father will rejoice over you and he will be the one singing over you. When Sophie was a toddler, I might sing her to sleep. It's a really nice memory that a dad could sing over his baby girl. And here is God doing that, soothing us and singing over us. And again, it's only possible because the day of the Lord is coming. And here is why the good news is so good. Are you embarrassed about God's judgment? You must not be. We need saving. And God himself promises to save it. God will do it. He is good for it. He is mighty to save. And his judgment on the world is all part of his plan of salvation. That evil would be crushed once and for all. And that he would bring us into his arms and soothe us and quiet us with his love. And that he would reassure us with his peace and with his justice. This is the God we worship. And so we need only look again at the cross. And there we remember God's judgment. We look at the cross. But we also remember the magnitude of his great love. We look at the resurrection and we know these promises are possible. That Jesus removes our shame. He abates our fear. He takes our punishment. He binds evil. He gathers his people as one, unified. And so we look at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and know full well that God is mighty to save, that he has done it, and yet he will do it. Verse 20, At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. We're going home. Who doesn't like going home? It's secure. It's familiar. And Zephaniah has been on about a great home coming. But again, it can and only will happen when God has dealt with evil in the world, when it is destroyed in the final judgment. Otherwise, coming home won't be much fun at all, will it? Otherwise, it'll just be more of the same. 
You cannot have this future unless God comes and judges evil. Those who speak against God's judgment deny the possibility of this future. If there's no judgment, this picture of the new creation is simply not possible. But the judgment of God is actually a blessing. It's not the source of shame and embarrassment. For there is no other way to be taken home. When God judges us now, it should call us back to his ways. And when he comes in final judgment, he will call us home. And that is indeed a good thing. Let's pray. Almighty Father, as we come to the end of this book, we praise and worship you for your great day of judgment. We thank you that evil will not escape judgment. We praise you that you never become weary or compromised in your hostility to evil and injustice. We remember that you do not overlook the sins of the church. We praise you that you are determined that the bride of Christ, the church, would be faithful to her husband, faithful to your word as it is taught. By your spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts that absorb your word. Forgive us for our disobedience, even when we have heard your word. Gracious Father, send us out with a renewed desire to live lives that conform to your word and the work of your Son in our hearts and in our minds. May today be a new start, a day when we leave our sins at the foot of the cross. Loving Father, set our hearts and minds on the coming day of judgment, when evil is judged and righteousness is established forever. May we long for that great day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.